One more uh, quick announcement that if you have any questions about the sermon, the passage, or the topic, you can text the number that will be on the screen in the bottom right-hand corner, and it's right there in the middle right now, uh, and, and I will do my best to answer those questions after the sermon, but before we move into communion. And, and like I said last week, Psalm 105, there is so much here that there's no way I can cover it all. So if you have a question or curious about something, then uh, please text in because uh, there's lots that you could be curious about here. Um, Growing up, I, uh, by ninth grade, I counted this up, and it was actually even more than I, I thought. By ninth grade, when I entered into high school, that ended up being the sixth school I had been enrolled in and attended. And so between kindergarten and ninth grade, so 10 years, I was in six different schools. And kindergarten, or, uh, high school was actually the longest I had been in uh, a school at one time, not more than two years in a row, actually. The reasons for that were many. Um, at the core of it, though, is because my parents divorced and separated first and then divorced when I was in second grade. And that began a, a three-year period of vicious custody battles and just a total mess. And then my parents, after you know, beggaring themselves through uh, with lawyers' fees and, and everything else that... Uh, living in a place and renting any given place was always really expensive. And so we moved around a lot based on how, like, the, the, the price of rent. I've realized a lot over the last several years how much that has affected me in ways that I didn't really have a category for or, or, or underestimated and underappreciated. Because if, if change... If, if things change in a way as seismic as like moving to a different place and starting at a, a new school, every time you just start to settle in, then it's also going to feel really hard to settle down, right? There's this, it, it created in me this kind of pseudo-homelessness, not an actual homelessness, but a, a, an incomplete homelessness that, yes, applies geographically and relationally in terms of having to start over with new friends and new relationships that created kind of an, an insecurity in me that I uh, really didn't have a whole lot of hope of overcoming much until I became a Christian. But this also has a lot of impact spiritually. One of the reasons I uh, am very familiar and comfortable with doubt and skepticism is because I didn't grow up in the church and in fact, uh, I think the way that this affects you spiritually, it's not just that I didn't grow up in church. It's also that um, faith is not just about this kind of intellectual difficulty and, and doubting faith or doubting Christianity or doubting what is true. It's not just a head exercise. It's a heart and relational exercise as well. And often, doubt or skepticism is actually a symptom or and a coping mechanism of a deeper existential homelessness. And this idea is, is, I think, far more, like, you don't have to have divorced parents to be able to identify with this, right? There is, like, everything about our society right now incentivizes this, makes this hard to resist and not experience or feel. Uh, we're doing a, a book club this, this fall on Alan Noble's You Are Not Your Own. And so um, not only because I'm obsessed with the book, though I am, but it actually addresses this very dynamic. Uh, he says, this, and, and he just summarizes this, this kind of existential homelessness. He uses the language of liquid modernity. And he says in his book, he says, to live in a high-tech, ultra-mobile society of sovereign individuals 
and perpetually changing norms is to be haunted with disorientation and disequilibrium. All bonds feel tentative and uncertain. Our place in the world feels speculative and subject to change. We wonder where we truly belong and how we can ever know that we belong. Our anxiety over belonging makes us highly sensitive to the flaws and betrayals and disappointments that attend all human efforts at community. We are not surprised when a friend betrays us, but it, is not, but it does cause us to question if we can ever belong safely anywhere. Ironically, the more we are connected, the more we are aware of everything that's going on in the world, the more that we have connections to people that we've never even met yet, to be everywhere is also to be nowhere. It makes us feel existentially homeless. If you've ever felt like um, the way God looks at you and feels toward you is a little bit like you know, the, the, the plucking of a petal off of a flower, you know, he loves me, he loves me not, he loves me, and it's like that arbitrary. If you feel like you are constantly going back and forth, there's a really good reason for that. It's all of this that I'm describing. In the midst of that, for me, something that has been incredibly anchoring and beautiful and comforting and helped to make those, maybe those swings less dramatic and also less frequent at the same time has been this idea of covenant. Covenant. It's a, it's a, it's a home that is greater than any exile, cultural, social, geographically literal, or spiritual. Uh, a former professor of mine uh, named Jay Scalar, he defines covenant as a promise more intimate and loving than a mere contract and more permanent and binding than a mere relationship. I love the, the, the kind of parallel here, here with covenant and home because home is also more personal than house and more binding than a place to stay. And so this morning, I want to offer this anchor. I want to offer this home and kind of... Ha- um, Use Psalm 105 as a, a kind of an introduction to this idea of covenant and how that is our home. Our, our, our home is in that covenant. And there's three dimensions, kind of three aspects or elements of a covenant. The first is this. The first is the covenant promise. Verses 30, or sorry, 43 through 45 say this. It says, so he brought his people out with joy, his chosen ones with singing. He gave them the lands of the nations and they took possession of the fruit of the people's toil, that they might keep his statutes and observe his laws, praise the Lord. Now, this idea of covenant is, is kind of sprinkled throughout, but it's really explicit here, and um, I need to preface this with a, a nerd alert, um, because I want to get super nerdy here and, and like kind of unpack this for you, because this is super interesting. And when you see this, you can't unsee it anywhere. That this, verses 43 through 45, is actually, it's poetic in form, but it's following what we call a covenant formulation. There are elements in here that are signaling to someone who is familiar with this idea of covenant, of which whom we are not, that this is what this is about. And specifically, we, we actually know a little bit about this through what's called the a Hittite Suzerain Treaty. I told you it was a nerd alert. Okay? Hittites were like a people that existed around the time of uh, that the Pentateuch, the Genesis through uh, Numbers was written. Um, suzerain means that it is a, a, an agreement not between equals, but between a king or a ruler and a vassal. And a treaty is that it's binding. And so a covenant in this context had this kind of idea that it was, it was, it was between a king and a vassal, and it was outlining 
the, the treaty part of it, outlines mutual promises. Promises that are both given and received. This is why we call marriage a covenant. Even though that's, that is between partners and not a ruler and a vassal, uh, it's very similar with those promises given and received. And so when God uses the word covenant in Scripture, he's actually he's saying, my relationship with you is like that. That's a good starting point, but it's different. And so the starting point is, is, is in that there are received and given promises, right? What Israel receives, verse 43, sorry, verse 44, is the land of the nations, the land of Canaan, it says in verse 11. So it's in here a, a couple times. This is referencing when God tells Abram, who is later named Abraham, he says, uh, leave the land of your forefathers, the land of Ur, which is modern-day Iraq, and go to the land that I show you, and I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you, and I will make your name great so that you can be a blessing to others. It's Genesis 12. It's, it's, it's covenant formulation. It's, it's, it's the promise there. He says this again, that when, when Israel leaves Egypt in slavery to go into the promised land, it's renewed at Mount Sinai. And the audience of Psalm 105, who would have been at the time book four was kind of put together like this, they would have been in exile in Babylon and wondering, is God faithful to his covenant promise? Will he return us to the promised land or are we in exile forever? In other words, are we ever going to go home? See, the, the promise of home is so much more than just this like, material reality. Like, if you own a home, um, you, you're, you, have, you are made a very wise financial choice if you were able to buy a home before, like, two, a year or two ago. If you don't own a home, I am so sorry, because I, I honestly have no idea how I would be able to afford a home now. It's crazy. That's not what this is talking about. This is not an economic promise. This is a promise of home, it's nothing less than the promise of lasting reconciliation, refuge, and redemption with God and with each other. No big deal, right? But there's also a promise that is given from Israel to God. It says in verse 45, that they might keep his statutes and observe his laws. That sounds like an obligation to us, right? And it sounds pretty constraining, but it's not as much of an obligation it sounds as it sounds to us, right? We're individualists, which means that any kind of constraint on our choice, on our autonomy, is going to feel unavoidably oppressive. But if you're living in a period of history where dog-eat-dog -dog tribalism affects all of life, you know, I mean, I mean long ago, you know, before we, before we figured out how to live peaceably with each other, right? Well, for people... In that kind of a context, this would be a gift and, and an obligation, but it's a good obligation because there is a home found and, and experienced in, in, in and through how we live. That's a gift. Okay, so that's the covenant promise. We see this in Psalm 105. The second element here is, a covenant, is the covenant representative. I'm going to focus on Abraham. Um, and because there's, there are several covenant representatives who are either explicitly named or, or implicitly referenced to in Psalm 105, but I want to focus on him and specifically uh, verses 12 through 15. It says, When they were few in number, of little account and sojourners in it, wandering from nation to nation, from one ki kingdom to another people, he allowed 
no one to oppress them. He rebuked kings on their account, saying, touch not my anointed ones. Do my prophets no harm. Now, this is referring to a period in Genesis 12 through 15, 20-ish, where, where Abraham it follows God out of Ur and gets to the promised land, but he finds out that there is no vacancy, uh, that there is no room in the land, that there are already peoples there. And God says, this is the land I'm going to give to your descendants, but you will not actually live to see them receive this land. You have to trust me. And so he's wandering in and around the land. And so it sounds like 12 through 15 is, is just kind of recounting God's promised protection and his end of the bargain, of the treaty. But it's more than that. It's so much more than that. Because a covenant representative, be it a king or a ruler of some kind, right? if you lived under that king's rule, then you would be kind of caught up in their worth or unworth as a covenant representative. So if they broke the treaty then your promises would be forfeit. But if they were worthy and they held up their end of the bargain, then you would experience blessing. That's what Abraham is designated and chosen by God as. And there's more going on here than promise protection. Verse 15, let me read this again because it should be underlined on the screen. Touch not my anointed ones, do my prophets no harm. This is lifted like copy-pasted from Genesis 20. And in Genesis 20, while they're wandering around and going from place to place, they go into a land that is ruled by a guy named King Abimelech. And when they go into that land, Abraham tells King Abimelech, oh, this gorgeous woman that I'm with, that's not my wife, that's my sister. And so King Abimelech says, so she's available. Great, and weds her. And what's happening, what's being quoted here is when God says, touch not my anointed ones, do my prophets no harm. This is actually when God tells King Abimelech in a dream, yes, I know, Abe, can I call you Abe? Abim? Yes, Abraham and Sarai, Sarah, lied, and you have not acted on that lie yet. But, and this is verse, this is literally Genesis 20, verse 3, you a dead man. And your people are doomed if you touch my anointed. You need to return my anointed to her, wife, to her husband. You know what's worse about this? This is the second time. This is the second time that Abraham has done this. And the first time is when they are forced out of uh, the, the promised land and the area around it to go to Egypt. And on the way, this is This is just mere verses, not even a full chapter after. God promises Abraham that I will give you this land and I will make of you descendants and a nation that numbers as the stars in the sky and the sands in the sea. I'm going to give it to you and you can count on that. You can take that to the bank. Abraham, first opportunity he gets. Literally, the first thing he does after receiving God's promises, his covenant promise, is surrender the promised mother of a promised people to a king God does not have a covenant treaty with. This is a terrible covenant representative, to say the least. Like, who chooses that guy to father a chosen people? This actually says not just a lot about the covenant representative, but our third element here which it says a lot about the nature of the God's covenant relationship with his people. 
If you heard as Maria was reading the passage, basically verses 8 through 42, like 90% of this psalm is doing nothing but recounting and remembering God's covenant relationship to his people. It's the vast majority of Psalm 105. It's a a poetic retelling of the long history of God's covenant relationship with Israel. And that covenant relationship, as it goes, both in history and in this psalm, it changes. It deepens. It grows over time. Kind of like with each covenant representative and, and period in redemptive history, it's like a new layer or level on a pyramid that as it stacks up, it becomes more clearly and more beautifully a pyramid It's more clear what kind of covenant relationship God has with his people. Um, When sleep-deprived and when Ransom and Deacon were particularly little, and Deacon still is, um, for both of them, I I just made up a song that I sing to them that's unique and distinct to them. And no, I'm not going to sing it here because I like you guys. (laughs) But that song, which Ransom now still has me sing to him every night before Whenever I put him to bed, um, he calls it his special song. Uh, it just, it's, like, it's not rocket science, guys. It's just, it's just three things, right? It's, it's his name. Um, it's uh, for Ransom, I, I, I call him little buddy. He's my little buddy. Uh, for Deacon, it's Deacon Deuterino. Um, <laughs> did I mention sleep deprived? Um, and that I'm your daddy. It's... Who you are, who you, who you are to me, and who I am to you. I didn't do that on purpose. It just happened that way. It's perfect, perfect sermon illustration, right? And I would sing to them. It would be kind of a one-way thing, right? He didn't sing along with me when he was weeks old. But Ransom now, he just had his first day of kindergarten on Thursday and starts his first full week tomorrow. Pray for all of us. Um, the day before, I, I took him just a special father-son thing, and we, we went to go get his haircut, and, um, and after getting his haircut, he, we, we, he got to pick where we went for dinner, just the two of us, and he picked barbecue because he's my son. Um, and so during barbecue, I said, hey, bud, I, wanna, I wanted to like, do this special thing. Like, this is a big deal you go into kindergarten, and I wanted to make it a special occasion and, and have this little chat between us, and I wanted to tell you two things. I'm going like, to choke up. Um, I said, I wanted, I wanted to tell you my favorite thing about you, uh, which is that you love to make people smile and laugh. And, and the second thing is, I want to tell you what I'm most excited for you to experience going into k- kindergarten. And, and I know you're going to be good at it. And that is making new friends. And that's different from his special song. And he interacted more. And I'm like excited to think about like, oh my God, what is it going to be like when he goes to college? And we got a few more of these things, you know, between now and then that I get to like kind of ramp up because kindergarten was fun enough, right? It's a covenant relationship and it grows and it deepens. In verses 8 through 41, we see how God with his children and his people with each stage and step, it may, he makes it increasingly and historically clear that despite us, I'm going to use covenant as an adjective, not just a noun. That despite us, God covenants to choose to love the undeserving. Because if Abraham is chosen, then it has to be to choose to love the undeserving, right? God covenants to save the weak through weakness. That's the story of Joseph. 
as referenced in 16 to 22, that God covenants to redeem against all odds and to ransom the helpless. God covenants to protect and to provide for the vulnerable. You know, one of the things I hear my grandma, my grandma used to say, um, he used to, she used to call people characters. And there's, there's two kind of different groups of people that, he, that she called characters. And if it was my brother and I doing something silly and funny and making her laugh, she'd be like, oh, you get, you, you're such a character. And then if she was like watching the news or something political comes on, he would say, She's, you know, he's such a character. The reality is that all of these people are the latter, and yet to God, he sees them as the former. And I've heard, I, I can't tell you how many times I hear often, you know, if, if the, the New Testament shows a God of love and mercy and the Old Testament shows a God of, of, of wrath and justice, and if you think that the, ultimate, the Old Testament only shows a God of wrath and justice, then you haven't actually read the Old Testament. Now, this is beautiful and it tells us a lot about the God's covenant relationship with us, but it also introduces a problem, right? Because... These guys are real characters, right? Like, and, and, and how does the entire covenantal relationship not just break down if no one is worthy enough and no one is, is, is everyone's so unworthy? Like at that point, if God's people fail time and time and time again, does that not make God a cosmic codependent enabler? Right? If you're asking this question... Know that Israel felt that way too. <laughs> They're like, I don't understand why he's still doing this, right? But that's why that they expected and God promised to send a better covenant representative, a better Messiah. That's, by the way, that's what, Christ is not Jesus', Jesus last name. Christ is his title. It's translated, like literally translated, it means Messiah. This is the one that all of this tension is building up to, to be fulfilled and satisfied in. And this Messiah will act, is actually worthy. And so let's, this is implied by Psalm 105. But this is our new covenant in Christ. Our new covenant in Christ. The pinnacle of the pyramid that keeps being built up. All of these layers. The very climax of the story is Jesus, not just in his person, though that is the case, but also in his life, death, and resurrection. 2 Corinthians 2 verse 10 says that all the promises of God, if you have your Bibles, by the way, and you want to open up to 2 Corinthians 10, I want you to put in and write, if you have a, something, a pen small enough, write all of the covenant promises of God. All of the covenant promises of God find their yes and amen in him. In his life, Jesus demonstrated that he is the covenant representative that we need, the new covenant representative. He is the true, true and better Adam. He is the true and better Noah. He is the true and better Abraham. He is the true and better Isaac. He is the true and better Jacob, which by the way, Jacob's name means deceiver. He is the true and better Moses. He is the true and better David. He is the high priest, the eternal king, the true prophet. Thank God, because we would have no hope apart from that. His worth fulfills our covenant promises that we are obligated to give, and his worth makes us worthy in him. Not just in his life, but also in his death. In his death, he fulfills the covenant relationship. 
This is beautiful. Abraham, in Genesis 15, so between the two times that he sold his wife for protection, basically, between there, in Genesis 15, God says, okay, this promise I gave you, we're going to officially enact it. And here's what I want you to do. I want you to prepare for this. I'm going to make a covenant with you. And I want you to take this, this list of animals and I want you to uh, take them, cut them in half and I want you to spread those two halves apart so that their entrails, their guts and their intestines, and if kids weren't paying attention, they are now, um, are stretched between them. And it needs to be wide enough so that the two of us can walk through it because what we are saying in covenanting in this ceremony is that if either of us fail to live up to our covenant promises as the covenant representatives, then may, may what has happened to these animals happen to us. And God, once Abraham does this, causes Abraham to fall asleep. The language is, implies it's a supernatural sleep. And then he reiterates the promises again to Abraham in his dream. And he says, I am your God, and I will make of you a great nation. And I will give you this land. And I'm going to covenant with you. And while he is sleeping, it says, a smoking pot uh, a smoking fire pot and a torch walk through and go through those torn pieces together. That sounds weird. What's happening there is God is making a covenant with himself. He knows Abraham is unable and an unworthy covenant representative. And he says, my, my promises are actually not dependent on your faithfulness. They are dependent upon my faithfulness. And Jesus was torn apart. Jesus on the cross experienced what those animals did because we failed to uphold our end of the bargain. Jesus was the other party that went through representing us, the true and better covenant representative. I want to stop there, but I've got more. He seals in doing this. He seals the promise. It's not just his life. It's not just his death. It's also his resurrection. And I'll, you know, I've said up here before that if you don't believe in the resurrection, you should literally believe nothing else that we talk about as, as a church. Because if you don't believe in the resurrection, then you have no reason to believe anything else Jesus says because he can't be God and he's not God. But because he is resurrected... We know that God has remembered, as it says in verse 8, his covenant forever, that, that it doesn't expire, that it doesn't stop with any generation, never mind one 2,000, 3,000 years removed, that Jesus' resurrection, therefore, is the prologue to our epilogue. His resurrection is the down payment that guarantees our promised eternal inheritance based on God's covenant with us, not on our faithfulness to him. I'm going to give some so what application here, and then we're going to jump into the Q&A. But I want to talk about the, like this changes our definition of the gospel. Maybe you've grown up in church where you've heard the gospel talked about, and maybe it was defined for you as, you know, Jesus died for your sins. That's true. You can't read Genesis 15 and not like be excited about that, thank God. But it's so much more than that. The gospel 
It's the good news that God has been faithful to his covenant. And we have a new covenant in Christ that is greater than and still includes and fulfills and satisfies everything else. And there are four huge implications of that. The first is this. God knows we're undeserving. (laughs) I kind of got at this already, but I want to reiterate this because the smoking fire pot and and the torch, you know, smoke and fire, does that sound familiar? Verse 39, he spread a cloud for covering and fire to give light by night. This is God telling his people that when he leads them out of slavery in Egypt and into the promised land and, and the wilderness in between there, When he leads them, it's with a a pillar of smoke by day and a pillar of fire by night. He's saying, I ain't done yet. I'm faithful. This isn't a new promise. I'm, I'm faithful to the one you were not alive to receive. And it still applies. Secondly, God loves the undeserving. Rocky refused to put this on the medals this year for the Cornhole Tournament, but that's okay. Uh, but last year, if you were here, you know that the medals for the Cornhole Tournament said, had on the back a phrase that says, grace is for losers. <laughs> and it's funny, and it's true, right? Grace is for losers. If you don't read Abraham's story and not think, what a loser, you're not reading it right. And that's the guy that God chooses to love. Man, it gives you a lot more like hope that you might be loved by God, right? The irony is both times that he sells his wife <laughs> for the sake of like not being killed so that for his own safety and comfort, right? Both times Pharaoh and Abimelech act with far more integrity than he does. You do not earn God's love, not from the very beginning. Thirdly, God adopts the undeserving. This is not just an individualist endeavor. A covenant is made with a representative, but that representative represents a community. God is faithful through the covenant representative to a singular people. Israel is the Old Testament people of God, and the church is the New Testament people of God. But in Christ, all are family. We were adopted into. Which is why, by the way, you should take the covenant covenant membership class on September 17th. If you're not a member, become a member. Make, enter into that which God says is already true of the universal church of you in Christ. Make that true particularly in the local church. Don't just make it a spiritual reality. Make it an actual familial, relational reality. Lastly, God calls the undeserving into mission. When Genesis 12, the original promise of which every single covenant harkens back to since then, he says, Abraham, I will bless you in order to bless the nations. My blessing, my promises, my love for you does not stop with you. It extends to you, but also it is through you. I'm going to choose the weakest and smallest and most enslaved and miserable of all the peoples of the earth And from there, I will demonstrate my redemptive power. And you are called to witness it and testify to it and give an account of the redemptive that is obscene and ridiculous and undeserved. And every time Israel neglects mission, every time they neglect their calling to be a blessing, they they start to turn inward and then they slip into idolatry. You know, we think that if... 
the, the, the mission is actually ditched after we start to worship idols, but it's actually when we start to ditch the mission and neglect the love that God has called us to proclaim in word and deed, when that happens, we start to fall into idolatry because we have divorced ourselves from our need for God's grace. And we, have not, we don't go into the places where God, his power has to show up, otherwise we, it won't happen. And that's the cycle of exile and return that we see throughout the Old Testament. That's the reason why, right? Let me sum this up this way because we've got a few questions. But if you are feeling, to kind of go back to the very beginning of the sermon, if you're feeling existentially, spiritually homeless, right? If, if you doubt the first two of these and your struggle to, to, to believe that God knows that you're undeserving and that God loves that you as undeserving, that I would encourage you to devote yourself to the God adopts the undeserving and God calls the undeserving. You see, I think a lot of times we try to like remember that God loves us and God knows that we're undeserving and that, and that like if we just have to keep believing that more and we put the belief part on our shoulders in ways that are, is like not really sustainable, kind of bootstrap our way to faith. But actually being adopted and called is actually a gift that reinforces that. And too often, if you're, if you're wondering, like, oh, oh, I think he's talking about me, that's because this is all of us, right? right? We want to put one foot in and keep one foot out. The language in the New Testament says, devote yourself, not try it on. Try it on for a season, not saying don't do that. But if you're not all in, it's going to be really hard to know that God loves you and he's not surprised by your sin. So let's take a look at these questions. In your first point, were you equating the idea of home with being among a people who submit themselves to God, i.e. the church? Yes. I was delaying the, the very uh, implicit thread there until the very end. Um, somebody, uh, somebody was telling me uh, recently that uh, they were really struggling with like, like, what is actually the purpose of church? Like, why, why, would we, why would we go to church in the first place? And there's a lot of answers that the church has actually kind of provided for and said, like, well, here's a good reason. And, and they're often good reasons. Like, you go to church so you're not lonely. Like, that's a good reason. Uh, you go to church so that you can hear the Word of God preach. Like, yep, that's a good reason. Ultimately, you go to church in order to encounter God and because you have encountered God. There is no saving from something and not being saved into something. There is no being saved from yourself and from your sin and not also being saved into the church. It's inseparable. And it's only a modern Western individualist culture that actually says, okay, those, those make sense separate. So, next question. Verse 14 says, He allowed no one to oppress them. What does this mean? Weren't God's people very oppressed at this time? Great question. I, it's a paradox. There are all kinds of paradoxes in Scripture where like two seemingly contradictory things are side by side, and what's being implied there is that not ultimately, not maybe, maybe historically and physically and economically and like, like physically oppressed and enslaved, but not, not ultimately. And in this period of history, 12 through 15, 
uh, with, with Abraham, at that point, he wasn't oppressed. Like that, they were not in slavery. But it, in Genesis 15, when he, that covenant ceremony happens, he says, your descendants will be sojourners in another a land and they will be oppressed. And so God isn't surprised by that. He uses it. He co-ops it. He redeems it against all odds. Okay, lastly, how does the church balance the covenant commitment to its people and holding them accountable in tangible ways when there are issues of perpetual unrepentant sin or harm to others? Okay, I'm going to read this again slowly. Yes, to buy myself more time. Um, How does the church balance the covenant commitment to its people and holding them accountable in tangible ways when there are issues of perpetual unrepentant sin or harm to others? Um, it's not a balance. Well, okay, two answers, maybe more. One, it's not a balance. And being faithful to a covenant commitment to its people is holding them accountable in tangible ways. Like, that's part of what, you know, if you become a member of this church, you're saying like, I want to be shepherded, I want to be guided, I want to be pointed in the direction of Jesus as this church understands it. And you're also saying that like, I'm opting in now before I really don't want it later. And you're, you're kind of saying, I'm signing up for this knowing that in love, you will not neglect me. You will not allow me to go down a road or a path that is destructive and damaging to myself and others. So, great questions. If you want to follow up on those, any of those, please come talk to me afterward. Um, so, communion. Sorry, I was so, there's sometimes uh, in these, in sermon prep, I get so just like impacted and excited about the conclusion that I completely forget what to say at communion. When Jesus is with his disciples who would have been incredibly familiar with the Old Testament, the language of covenant would not have been new to them. It would have meant, it would have included way more than just relationship. It would have had all of this historical context. So that when Jesus was with his disciples on the night that he was betrayed and he took the bread and he broke it, and when he said, this is my body, it is broken for you, he is saying, God is faithful to his covenant that he made with Abraham. And that just as you are tearing this bread apart, I will be pulled apart and stretched on a cross to fulfill what you were unable to to deliver in love. Not because he had to, though he did, because he's glad to. He said to his disciples, because you're characters. Likewise, he took the wine and he poured it out and he says, this is my blood. It is the blood of the new covenant. It is given for the remission of sins. As often as you eat this bread and you drink this wine, you proclaim my death. In other words, you proclaim my faithfulness to the eternal covenant until I return to completely and utterly fulfill it and satisfy, because I've already satisfied it. Thank God, because we are poor, terrible, miserable characters as covenant representatives. We do not fully appreciate the covenant relationship God has made with us He is faithful to his promises. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you. Lord, when we are in, we are, when 
we are apathetic toward your covenant love, when we fail to be awed by your faithfulness, I pray, Lord, that you would help us to be nourished by your table, to be nourished by your supper and reminded that this is not just bread and wine that we eat and drink. It is the nourishment of promise kept across thousands of years in every time, situation, culture, and circumstance. And that you have proven your faithfulness and that whatever we carry and that whatever we worry you could, about you loving us in the midst of, Lord, it, it is just, it is irrelevant because you are faithful. Lord, thank you and pray all this in your name. Amen.